Okay. Uh, oh, hmm. Joke. Jokes. 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 Where, where are you? I asked my date to meet me at the gym, and she never showed up. Guess the two of us aren't going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> Straightforward, but I like that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the longest word in the dictionary? Nemono ultramicroscopic super silico volcano kenosis. Sorry, you wanted a funny answer. I gave you the literal what? answer. <laughs> that's that's actually the longest word, isn't it? Yeah, I, I yeah, I'm pretty it. sure. No, but good guess. <laughs> <laughs> the longest word is smiles because there's a mile between two s's. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and needless to say, I believe I won. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll let you have it. Oh, thank you. Hello, words, 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 words. Welcome, welcome back, everyone, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of ages but mostly in the working class stretch of age range uh to another episode of the truth about investing back to basics my name is chris holling and i'm sean cooper today we want to talk about liquid assets i think is the the title that we that we're officially going with here which is ironic because i think a lot of what you want to talk about is actually an illiquid asset yeah because i totally know what that means not you told liquid me to say, like no okay what? <laughs> <laughs> the opposite you're of right. liquid yeah you're right okay well i'll tell you what uh when when we make this this whole process when we make uh, our our syllabus i think we called it we really just kind of go through stuff like oh yeah we should touch on this topic and this topic and this topic and i write it down and i put it in a way that i can remember stuff and uh, the one that I put this one down is, but but my house will be paid off, and I've been told it's my best asset, and that's 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 the category, which is which is why it's liquid assets. So, or illiquid uh, assets, I, as the case may be, illiquid Ill, illiquid assets, as we just come to learn. Uh, <laughs> so the, the I guess I can just kind of hit on on what I wanted to address because this really is a conversation that I, I wind up having pretty consistently with people. Usually it's people at work, uh, but it's just with, with friends and, and different people that pass. And I, uh, Sean and I have kind of talked about this somewhat passively. And if, we, if we're able to kind of lead into what else it's attached to, then I, I think that that's a good way to go, if that's cryptic enough for you. So, uh, so when when people talk to me about uh, assets, there's there's something that I feel like maybe we've addressed on a on a previous episode. I'm almost positive we have is is when you're looking at uh, assets versus liabilities. To me, and really, like, please jump in after me, Sean, somewhere in here. Okay. Uh, but uh, when you're looking at assets versus liabilities, to me, is an asset is something that you purchase that makes you money is an asset. And then one that will cost you money after your purchase is a liability. And if you if you have that division at that point, then you're looking at like a, I think a vehicle is a prime example of a liability. 
you purchase the vehicle, you have to pay for maintenance on the vehicle, you have to pay for maintenance on the insurance, and the vehicle is going to depreciate. And it depreciates, people say it, it what is that, like drops 50% in value when you drive it off the lot if you buy a new one or something along those lines? Like, it's it's a, it's something that has value that you are going to continue to put money into it. Uh, if you maybe make the argument that you purchase the vehicle, say say you know that this, uh, what is that, that Cybertruck, that Tesla truck, if somehow you're from the future and you know having one of the original Cybertrucks that comes off the line is going to be worth you know, mountains of money because there's so few of them in rarity and you purchase it today and you put it away somewhere so that you can hang on to it and then you sell it later at a higher value uh, because you weren't driving it you were really just purchasing it as a as a collection at that point then that could be more of an asset than a liability i think that's the first thing that i should hit on before i kind of get away from that where where do you sit on those things uh, no, I think it's a good idea that you defined it because typically when I think of asset versus, uh, I mean, not necessarily, I don't, I don't necessarily think of asset versus liability so much as um, asset versus debt. Uh, although from a, you know, I think of it from more of an accounting standpoint, a balance sheet standpoint. So an asset is, you know, anything on the books that has a, a value that could be potentially sold. So the car would technically be an asset from that standpoint, as would like a house. Now you often have a loan offsetting it, and that would be your your liability in that standpoint. So if you have a ten thousand dollar car and a seven thousand dollar loan, then your the the impact on your net worth is three thousand dollars. So the difference. So. Uh, I think it's good that we're defining asset in this standpoint as something that uh, can be productive for you as opposed to yeah. being a potential liability to you uh, as you're yeah. defining it. So Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we're touching on that. So because uh, to me, and, and just clarifying what you're saying, uh, because this is, this is also the kind of the understanding that I've had is that there's a, a broad term, like a textbook term, and I believe that's what you're touching on of what an asset is. Right. And so when people say, let's let's list your assets, then it can be something like your home. It can be something like your vehicle. Because ultimately, uh, when you're having your assets evaluated uh, as as a whole of what it's, it's a, a matter of should we loan this to you, usually, should we loan this money to you because can you pay us back because you have X amount of value in other things is assets to them but when we're trying to look and maybe this is more of a philosophical view as a whole when we're trying to look moving forward of you want to make sure that you are purchasing assets for your longevity then that's when you're looking for things that are going to work for you so that asset versus a liability uh, as a whole is kind of what we shoot for as a whole if that is that is that fair? Is that yeah you, yeah you're shooting to define asset as something that uh, can provide growth to your net worth as opposed to Excellent. just being part of your net worth. Because in in my yes. example, the car, if I have three thousand dollars in cash and I go out and buy that ten thousand dollar car, my assets, my cash has gone down by three thousand and simultaneously up by ten thousand the car. 
and then my liabilities have gone up by 7,000. Thus, I net, my net worth has not changed. It's still that $3,000 that I started with in cash. Whereas here we're talking about something that can actually provide growth to your net worth. So investing in a company or you start a restaurant or you go out and uh, invest in education that can get you a higher paying job. Those types of things are what you're viewing as an asset to your the, the growth of your net worth, the growth of your capital. Yes, exactly. And that's that's actually I man, I'm really glad that we're covering on this because when when I have this listed on here as the uh, I've been told my house is my best asset by Sean's textbook definition that we're going off of it absolutely can be one of the largest assets to to your books labeling wise but when we're talking about building something that is built for growth and for your long-term net worth and uh really to me the ability to move forward more efficiently and you're looking at homes then people like to consider a home as an asset mainly because of the appreciation. Oh, if I get this home in this location, then the value is going to increase and it's going to be worth this much more money, which is true. There's there's no part of me that says that that doesn't want to happen. But something that I really want to address on here is that I feel like people don't consider things the way that they should when they're looking at this. Because what I've had several times, oh, well, if I get this home, I can't, I can't get this you know, $500,000 house that I want to buy right now. Uh, so instead, I'm going to get this house that's 250000 because I can afford that. And then you know, down the road, when, uh, when I got more money into this $250,000 house, and then it's going to increase, you know, it's going to double. I know that this is going to double, and then that $250,000 house is worth $500,000. Hey, you know what? When I when I make it, you know, 30 years down the road and I've got my my mortgage paid off, then I'm just going to slide over to that house that I really want and I'm paying into this house because of the appreciation I've got. Well, your house did double. It did go from 250,000 to 500,000. But that home that you want to get to doubled from 500,000 to a million. And if you're looking at things like that as a, well, I'm going to put into this so that I can go purchase this down the road, it, it doesn't work if it's what would be considered a lateral move. If you are going from the same spot to the same spot that's down the block, then that value is also going to increase in the process. So if you're looking into, I'm going to dump all of my money into this category that, that is an asset to me, which is my house because it's going to appreciate because then I'm going to get this more expensive house down the road. That is also going to increase in price down the road. And you are to, in, in this definition, purchasing a liability in order to have a larger down payment for a larger liability down the road, because both circumstances are going to be something that you are putting money into that you will have to pay for that. You will have things that will come up like repairs unless you're purchasing this home to be rented out or you're purchasing this home because part of it's going to be an Airbnb or you have some arrangement where where you are able to use this for business, that cash flow that's able to start working in that category, that home then becomes an asset at that point. And if you're not doing it that way and you're just living in it and it appreciates and then you sell the home to move to another home, but you move from New York City to Dayton, Ohio, 
well, that's different because then you would be not making a lateral move in the same area because the the amount of cost for housing in that area increased at different rates and is worth different values. And so you might get that bigger home that's worth a certain amount that you got due to utilizing the appreciation of the home, but you're not using that appreciation to move next door to another house that appreciated at the same time, which is why Denver is such a hot market, honestly, involving real estate is when you have places like California, New York, the oil and gas money from Texas, you have really expensive homes and cash floating around. And then people will come to the Denver area and say, Hey, I'll, I'll pay cash. I'll handle this right now. Uh, yeah, I had this condo that was worth a million dollars in California. That was a, you know, one bedroom, one bath. Uh, Of course, I'll take your four bed, three bath, $500,000 house in the suburbs. And that's because they're, they're able to make that move from place to place. And it's not as much of a lateral move. Was that, was that convoluted or did I, did I hit on that? Did I go all over the place? I felt like I just kind of jumped everywhere. No, I thought it was solid. Uh, there were okay. two things I would add that you touched on are number one, the appreciation and number two, the liquidity factor. Yeah. So first off, in regard to the appreciation, uh, housing prices. So all these people that think you can, you know, buy a house and then later it will be worth way, way more money or, you know, the, the people that want to flip a house or, you know, in some instances, they just want to buy it, hold on to it for a year, and then they can sell it for more the next year, which currently and in the recent history has been true because lately we're having, you know, double digit appreciation in most markets. Um, and but the, the growth that we've experienced over the last few years is largely or predominantly fueled by really low interest rates. Sure. Uh, and then if you look prior to that, you know, leading up to like 2007, that growth in the housing market was predominantly fueled by uh, different forms of government regulation. So as opposed to controlling interest rates, you know, you're looking at the Affordable Housing Act from 1992 and a variety of uh, additional regulations that occurred after that, that basically spurred the, the housing market on leading all the way up to 2007. Um, if you look at it from a longer historical standpoint, Real property appreciation averages only about three and a half percent annually, which, when you okay. consider inflation's three point one, it's it's not really that great of an inflation hedge. So, uh, just something along the lines of the the appreciation to put it into perspective, because I feel like people look uh, they, they latch on to what's happened most recently and assume that that's going to continue on, and that's not necessarily the case. The other aspect you mentioned was the liquidity, uh, and you're talking about this uh, idea of you know moving laterally. You know, if you just move down the block, it doesn't really help you, unless of course you happen to be sitting like right on the the line where you know across the street you you oh, sure. you From move like into cities. Yeah, yeah, you move <laughs> into a different uh, uh, area that is, uh, you know, run down or something along those lines. But in, in, in general terms, yeah, if you move down the block, you're, you're not really helping yourself out. Uh, whereas if you move from, you know, an entirely different city in a different state with very different uh, demographics in terms of, you know, housing, that makes a big difference. But all of that kind of lends itself to the liquidity factor in this in looking at the house as an asset. Yes, it is an asset from my definition 
of the term, but that asset is only that equity that you've built up, that asset is only accessible if you either A, sell the home, or B, take out some kind of loan on it, um, you know, a HELOC, home equity line of credit, a second mortgage, or a reverse mortgage, something along those lines. Otherwise, that, that asset, that equity, doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot unless you just are, your goal is to pass it on to your heirs, and then, yeah, they can have that asset. Um, but for your your personal finances, it doesn't it doesn't mean a whole lot from that standpoint as an asset because it is yeah. illiquid. So anyway, no, I, I think those are those are great points. And and this this all came about, and maybe I should have started with this, but the, this all came about because specifically I was having a conversation with some people the other day that. Uh, and your your mention to the low mortgage rate made me think of it specifically is that uh, somebody was talking about hey i'm i'm thinking about buying a house i've been thinking about buying a house for a while and uh this was this was a few weeks ago when when we we still had active two percent mortgage rates which i think they're in the threes now again um but uh while we were talking about it one of the pieces of advice that started floating around was uh somebody that had had a home for I believe 20 or so years uh, in, in the Denver metro area. And he said, okay, I'll tell you exactly what you should do. I said, what you should do is that because the mortgage rates are the lowest that they've ever been in, in the history of, of anything, then uh, what you need to do is you need to buy the absolute biggest house that you can because this is, this is going to be the lowest mortgage rate that you'll ever see and you'll never have advantage of it again. And, and it's practically free money, man, because if you got it at 4%, then you would have had that much less uh, value in the house when you bought it. Uh, so instead, you should get this really big house and just kind of bite the bullet on trying to take care of your, your mortgage that way because you're going to make more money that way because the mortgage rate is low. And that was the advice that was given. And I personally have a big issue with it. him and I, <laughs> we, we had a conversation, the guy that was asking about homes, we talked about it at a much different length later on because I, I didn't want to just create a big stir <laughs> in this very solid, straightforward advice that was coming through. That would have been uh, way more fun though. Oh, I know. I know. I just, I was, we were arguing all week in the first place, so I don't need to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and the, the fact is, is that I, I honestly understand why he feels that way i really do because if you come from a point where you've seen mortgages that are at say 12 percent, and then they start to drop over the years and then they hold at four to six and then they go to three and then you see it at this two percent which is just unheard of then yeah if the if the advice that you've been given previously in your life is uh early on that you need to purchase a home and you need to put your money into your home because it's your best asset then of course that advice makes sense. But it's it's not the thing that you need to consider about you. Because the, the fact of the matter is still to me from a personal finance standpoint, you need to make sure that you are taking care of yourself and the cash flow. And going back to our second season, we're talking about framework. When when you are doing these things and go, okay, I'm I'm gonna take the extra money that I make and pay for this huge mortgage that I just took on because I got it at two point something percent. That that takes money away from where you might be able to put it 
elsewhere, whether it's because you feel that you have other important things in your life or just a fact of taking that money and putting it towards something else, helping helping start a business, putting it towards uh, calling <laughs> calling up Sean and saying, hey, can you get me a better mortgage rate than, or excuse me, would you be able to get a better interest rate if I start investing with you than if I put extra money into this this mortgage that I have? Like there, there are other avenues to go that aren't just, I'm going to take on this big bill, this big mortgage. And ultimately the term is house poor, you know, having, having this land baron status <laughs> and, and working yourself to death for this home that, you know, you like, and it's bigger and it's nice, but all based off of, to me, poor advice. Uh, there's, there's no reason to tie yourself down to something like that. And, uh, especially, especially if you are putting into this where you're just working extra hard to be able to afford this this low interest rate mortgage that you have just to sell the home later to make a lateral move to another house down the road really doesn't make sense to me um, because the reason that you invest, the reason that you have a framework and a, and a certain setup is so that you can live your life the way that you want to and, and not just taking on, to me, more liabilities because you're getting bad investment advice. Yeah, I, I would. Yep. <laughs> no, I mean, to, to add to that, uh, I would say his advice isn't, the friend's advice isn't bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. And the, the reason being is it's all of this, it, it can't be done as a blanket advice. Everybody should do this or nobody should do this. It's It's all relative. And what I mean by that is, if you are looking at a home purchase relative to renting, okay, then we have to evaluate what are you paying in rent? What is your mortgage going to be? What is the interest rate going to be? And actually comparing that to see what it does to your finances. If your rent and your mortgage are going to be identical, then it's a pretty good chance that you're better off with the mortgage. Sure. Because at least then you're building some equity. Now, if your rent is going to be significantly lower than your mortgage, then you really got to start crunching the numbers because you got to see how that pans out on, you know, if if I continue to pay rent, um, how much of this extra money that I would have been putting into a mortgage could I be saving and would I make more on that that money, if I invested it, which is kind of what Chris has been getting at here, would I make more on that money investing it than what I'm going to build up in equity in the home? Plus, there's the liquidity factor of is this investment going to be more liquid than the house and things along those lines. So if you you incorporate that idea that the appreciation on the house is you know a long-term average, about 3.5%, whereas you could invest it and provided your your risk tolerance, your ability to assume risk, your willingness to assume risk affords you the the opportunity to invest more aggressively and earn more than three and a half percent, then it might be a situation where uh, you'd actually be better off just investing the difference and continuing to rent. Now, in all fairness, I haven't actually seen that pan out in uh, real numbers, but the point is you need to take the time to evaluate the options to determine what's going to be your best bet. The other things that you can you, you want to look at in terms of the you know the the rent versus a mortgage is uh, some of these ideas that we've already talked about of inflation and taxes because 
if you consider the fact that inflation averages roughly 3, 3.1%, if you're paying a mortgage at, say, 4%, then in practical terms, 3% of that 4% interest is kind of being taken up by inflation. In other words, you're paying them back with uh, money that's not worth as much as it was when you borrowed it. So it was worth more to you than it was to them, uh, that 3% portion anyway, up to 3% rather, I should say. Um, yeah. The reason I threw out 4% is you know, it wasn't as much of a, a factor in the last couple years because the uh, the Trump tax cuts uh, increased the standard deduction so much that most people were taking the standard deduction instead of itemizing. But now that the standard deduction has been lowered again, uh, I think they cut it by about a third. So they took about a third of it off. More people are going to be itemizing. So this other factor becomes a, a, a larger player. And that is the interest you pay on your mortgage of a, a primary residence that is, is actually tax deductible up to a certain amount. So up to a certain amount of mortgage. Um, and so say you, for example, you're in a tax bracket where uh, right around say 25%, then effectively you're, the interest you're paying is reducing your taxes in such a way as to offset roughly 1% of the interest you're paying on your taxes. So that that's why I mentioned the 4% because you've got roughly 3% being eaten up by inflation and another 1% being eaten up by uh, tax deduction. So it, it can eat up roughly 4% of an interest rate on a mortgage. So that actually lends itself to having a mortgage as opposed to renting, um, at least conceptually. Sure, and that's that's interesting. Those are those are definitely some variations that I, I didn't even consider. Which I'm glad that we touched on inflation and interest right before this for for those reasons. Exactly. Um, and the other thing is, and, uh, again, because it is relative. What I was talking about there is renting versus buying. If you're talking about buying X versus buying X plus a hundred thousand, you know getting at the idea of buying something much bigger simply because interest rates are low, it, that that whole relativity thing gets kind of thrown out the window and you're not really helping yourself. Right. And unless, you know, like we were trying to address earlier, or I was maybe trying to address earlier, that if your goal, because this is a case-by-case -case basis, if your goal is to be in a circumstance where you are in, say, L.A., New York, and you are trying to be there for a couple of years but then you're leaving to go to a certain area and you're making that active choice that okay i could rent here for a while or i could build up some equity in the process and take some of this with me i, I had somebody right. that just recently did that they left the denver metro area to go out to iowa and essentially half of their home was paid for when they got out there because of the the way the market is out here and the amount that the value of the homes are out here and then when he moved you know it it worked well in his favor. And so if you're making an active choice for it, because that is, that's your prerogative. That's how you've built, uh, things moving forward. Then, then that's, that's a good decision where it might not be for, for someone else. As I talk, yeah, we, we, we briefly talked about the illiquidity of a home. Unless you sell it, you can't really access those assets. The alternative being, um, taking out an additional loan of some sort, whether it's a HELOC, which is home equity line of credit. So you, you basically take out 
you use a portion of the home. So say you have 100000 in equity in the home, you take out 50 of that as a home equity line of credit. So you're not actually, you don't necessarily touch it. You just have that line of credit. That's what it is. And then at some point you decide you want to use it to uh, remodel the kitchen. So you take out 20 grand. Okay. So you pay interest on that and you, you can pay it back off over time. You still have that line of line of credit. So it provides some liquidity, but you are going to pay interest on it and you're going to have to, uh, I mean, the goal is to eventually pay back the balance as well. Plus you're still paying your original mortgage. Uh, alternatively, you could take out a, a second mortgage or refinance and take out cash in the process. Same basic concept, except in that scenario, instead of only paying on what you've borrowed, you've actually already borrowed the you know, whatever extra amount is, and then you're paying the interest and the, the, the principal on all of it. And then the, the final example, and this is what um, people tend to get into as they, they get older in terms of accessing the liquidity in their home, or the equity in their home, I should say, is a reverse mortgage, which is more or less exactly what it sounds like. Instead of you paying uh, the mortgage, and you know, gradually buying the house from the bank, the bank is effectively buying the house back from you. Uh, typically, it's not the same bank because it's different banks that offer reverse mortgages, but that is more or less what they are doing. Uh, now, they, they can do a lump sum and they just you know, pay you a, a lump sum. And at that point, you get to continue living in the house, but for all intents and purposes, it's the, the bank at that point basically owns it, if you will. Um, the Your heirs have the option to buy it back when you pass away, uh, which is always the case with the reverse mortgage. Um, but the other option is to have uh, payments for a set period, like 10 years, or have it, uh, payments for your lifetime. And basically the bank is you've you've turned off your mortgage payment to the bank and now the bank is actually or a different bank i should say it most likely is paying you for your house so gradually buying that equity back from you at a set interest rate and there's and that's a, go ahead I, I was just gonna say that's that's something that was somewhat newer to me to learn about and it's uh it's it's good to be aware of to know how they work just like sean was addressing on on the ins and outs of how they work because that's i feel like not how it's approached not how it's explained at least with the the few that i've spoken with that that get involved with reverse mortgages because the way it was presented to them was very much in the aspect of well we will give you money for your home and you don't have to worry about mortgage stuff anymore because you have so much value in your home that you're basically just living off the appreciation is the way that it's been explained to them oh that is how i've almost always heard it explained that's how you've always heard it explained pretty much yeah yeah and and it's unfortunate because it really it's, it's really not that simple um uh because the the amount that that does get utilized is is the amount that that the bank needs to retain ownership for it in order to pay that money back to you and and so it's it's something that you really have to to make sure that you're taking into consideration before taking on something like a reverse mortgage because you need to ask yourself would 
would I be better off uh, having a certain amount of of money invested to gain dividends back to to have some form of interest from to help us pay for our mortgage to help us pay for our day-to-day to help us pay for these things rather than essentially selling off your house early i guess is the best way to say it and and just making sure that you're you're evaluating these things i kind of live under the guise of you know you don't you don't ask a life insurance salesman whether or not you need life insurance uh, <laughs> you know yep. like, well, and so if you're talking to somebody that specializes in reverse mortgages uh then you know maybe maybe also address it with somebody else uh just there's nothing wrong with second opinions uh but if you're only speaking to somebody about whether or not a reverse mortgage is good and they happen to sell reverse mortgages then then speak with you know maybe your your neighborhood friendly asset manager that uh that might be a good a good start somewhere <laughs> yeah the, the notion um, is nice that your appreciation in your home will offset the interest that accrues on the the reverse mortgage uh, in practical purposes, that's not always the case. In fact, they ran into a lot of issues where uh, the early phases of reverse mortgages where basically the equity was all eaten up and then the bank was trying to take back the house. And then the people were being evicted. Uh, and we're talking about people, so reverse mortgages are I believe the restriction is you have to be 62 to qualify. So we're talking about retirees for the most part that are being were being evicted, and so the government stepped in and created all forms of regulation on it. And so now the the they they cannot take the house until after the people have passed away, and they still have to give the opportunity to the heirs to buy the house back if they choose. But they have to pay the whole thing back basically up front. And um, is it the value at which they they signed for the reverse mortgage or is it like current market rates if if that happens? Do you know, that is a great question, because um, the the reverse mortgage is going to be the the equity in the home and the, the property value is actually reassessed over time. Mm-hmm. Um because they're trying to utilize the appreciation. So I imagine Correct. it's probably market. Yeah, so it's going to be fairly close to market. I mean, it, it's, it's effectively what's what's going to be owed. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, it can, yeah, it could get, get up there. Uh, the, the nice thing about that is now they can't take the house back. And if it's on a lifetime payment, they have to continue paying. Even after the equity is eaten up, they still have to pay that that uh, monthly or quarterly or annual amount that they have committed to for the person's life. So it does create kind of a lifetime a lifetime annuity there. Because of those restrictions, the payout on them tends to be less, and there are also lots of limits on uh, how it's done. So, for example, you have to, I believe, uh, depending on which group you're, which reverse mortgage lender you're dealing with, typically they need at least 50% of the home to have been paid off. So you need at least 50% of the, the value of the home in equity to even qualify. And then you're never going to be able to take out like the full amount of what it is. Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite a bit less than that. So you're, you're committing to uh, basically this plan of them gradually buying the house back from you but with only a fraction of the the house, if that makes any sense. So, it the the payouts on them are not as 
significant as they they used to be there are certainly situations where it makes a lot of sense for somebody to do so because they're in a tight situation but you still want to evaluate it really really closely and it's it's also i guess it probably is case by case basis but it's it's not something that is made to have the payouts adjust for inflation either correct usually it's going to be a this is what you're paid each month right until until the end of life right that yeah typically yeah, you, so, I, you might be able to find one that does adjust for inflation, and certainly that's part of the the notion of this idea of the interest or your um, equity or your property value increasing. Is that will help can help increase the payment over time or allow you to increase the payment? Because some of them also have the option of. Uh, not only a, a, a set payment, but you have an additional line of credit in there as well to take extra. Um, and you can use that based on the appreciation, or at least that that's conceptually what the idea is there to help offset inflation. So, yeah. So here, the, these are, these are a bunch of options, a bunch of, uh, it's just a bunch of considerations when you're looking at liquid, when you're looking at illiquid, when you're looking at what you want to do long-term, uh, purchasing a home is is a common thing to do and can be an asset by textbook or a liability by philosophical view <laughs> right um, or or an actual asset as a whole of something that can make you money in the long hold it's it's just no different than than other things that we've addressed before is that it's a matter of finding out what is important to you and what works well for you and more tools for the toolbox but these things won't work for you unless you understand them, which is why I think it's it's really good and important that we've we've started touching on some of these things, and we'll go into some of that a little bit further. Our our next episode is actually going to be talking about debt versus ownership, and I imagine we're going to start touching on some of that when it gets into homes anyway, because that's that's some of the things that we're starting to address in here anyway. Is uh, is there anything else that that we should make sure we touch on in here? No, I think you, you summed it up pretty good. Yeah, the home can be an asset. It uh, can certainly be a something that you, you pass to your heirs, and there's some tax advantages in that regard in terms of step-up in basis and that kind of thing, But um, which all may be changing. We'll see. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it's something you want to evaluate. You know, how, how valuable is it? How important is it in terms of your overall plans for your investing it's all relative. So something to be evaluated for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining us today on the truth about investing back to basics. Thank you for taking the time to want to learn to better yourself uh, on a, on a day to day measure, because I think that that's sometimes a lost skill. So thank you again for joining us today. My name is Chris Holling and I'm Sean Cooper and we will catch you on the next episode. Podcast disclaimer, disclaimer. The disclaimer following this disclaimer is the disclaimer that is required for this podcast to be up and running and fully functioning and moving forward. This is going to be the same disclaimer that you will hear in each one of our episodes. We hope you enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it.
All content on this podcast and accompanying transcript is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein by Sean Cooper are solely those of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, unless otherwise specifically cited. Chris Halling is not affiliated with Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, nor do the views expressed by Chris Halling represent the views of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC. This podcast is intended to be used in its entirety. Any other use beyond its author's intent, distribution, or copying of the contents of this podcast is strictly prohibited. Nothing in this podcast is intended as legal accounting or tax advice and is for informational purposes only. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. This podcast may reference links to websites for the convenience of our users. Our firm has no control over the accuracy or content of these other websites. Advisory services are offered through Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, an investment advisor firm registered in the states of Washington and Colorado. The presence of this podcast on the internet shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by our firm in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without our first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant an applicable state exemption. For information concerning the status or disciplinary history of a broker-dealer, investment advisor, or their representatives, the consumer should contact their state securities administrator. I was like that as a kid growing up. I had all the toys. Yeah, there's there's a video of me where I'm I'm in a in a playpen with a friend of mine that I was growing up with, and uh, you see there's five toys on my side, and she has a toy by her, and she picks it up and starts like hitting the the side of the playpen with it, and I walk over to her and I grab it and I take it and I go back over to my pile of the rest of my toys and play with them. <laughs> She's just sitting. <laughs> At least you played with them. I've seen children that will, you know, just put it in their pile of toys and sit there and guard it as opposed to...